Almighty God, we thank you for your word. Apart from your illumination, however, we are blind. We cannot see. So we pray that as you summoned Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus, come out. That you would summon us, summon our slumbering hearts to life. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We continue our, our series in 1 Timothy 5. There is only one more sermon to go in this series. We started out in the beginning, and we've come to the end. This is our second to last and we're talking about relationships in a missional church. I've saved the best for last, by the way, money. So make sure that you come in two weeks to hear that sermon. The deacons asked me to preach that one. I didn't want to preach it myself. But. <clears throat> I give a, an extended text for my message in the bulletin, but I'm only going to read the first two verses of this passage. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. This is God's eternal word. Actually, I think I'll take it down to verse 3. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 3. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. Today, in the United States, we honor our mothers. This is a, a tradition, a holiday that has developed over the last hundred years or so. Women who have given us birth, raised us, taught us, cared for us. And it occurred to me that it was fitting also in church that we honor the one to which I believe earthly motherhood points, and that is our spiritual mother, the church. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul describes the church as the mom of everyone who believes. He says, it is the Jerusalem that is above, our mother. And the ancient Christian fathers offered some strong counsel regarding our spiritual mom, saying, you may not take God as your father unless you will take the church as your mother. So if you take anything away from my message this morning, remember this. Not only is the church our mother, the cradle of faith for all believers, but the people in the community of believers, in the church community, are given by God to enable us to experience what true redeeming family is all about. Christianity is not a solo sport. That's a tough message. In a world of broken families, I think it resonates in part of our hearts and part of our lives that surely there's a place that we can go, someplace like the church, to, to experience the parenting that we never experienced. But few leaders today in the church even are aware of, even know, those that they have been called to care for. In an increasingly mobile society, how can we possibly have relationships with people that we only see once a week? Legalism sends people outside the church to experience the healing community 
and the acceptance and the nurture and the intimacy that I think God intends for us to have in the church. And when people do make a commitment to the Christian family, those people are either naive on the one hand or too often jaded and skeptical on the other, like a friend of mine who once said, my tithe goes to Caleb because I get more encouragement from the radio than I do from my church. Then I thought of this problem with church today. Money and status often creates unbridgeable barriers between people having relationships with one another in the church. So in the context of our passage in 1 Timothy, honoring our spiritual mother, the church, requires us to honor the people within the church. But that is hard. Let me read it again. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. My message this morning has three points, and for people that like to take notes, each point begins with a P and ends with an F. See if, this, see if I'm right. The pattern of relationships in the church is family. That's its family pattern. The problem with relationship in the church are fractures, fractures of sin. That's its fracture problem. But the practice of relationships in the church requires faith. That's its faith practice. It's family pattern. This is a bit of a review, but in Ephesus, which is the city that, that Timothy's in, and Paul isn't there, so Paul's writing pastoral notes to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, on how he can work through some of the problems in the church there. Surprise, surprise. The false teachers in Ephesus were creating divisions in the church. And the divisions that they were creating, I believe, resulted from their fundamental belief that Christianity was about performance. It was about sophistication. It was about advanced theological and moral principles. And working that doctrine in the church was causing divisions. And one of the reasons that these themes are out of place is because the church isn't primarily about performance. It's about family. And any of you who have been in a family where the primary uh, bar of acceptance is performance know what I'm talking about. It's a terrible thing. In fact, the reason that Paul wrote this letter in part, was to straighten out the non-family atmosphere that had cropped up in Ephesus. Listen again to the theme of the book in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, in the family of God. This isn't new with Paul. Even Jesus himself in the Gospels articulates the same idea. Matthew 12. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But Jesus replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, my sister, and my brother. The implication as I read that is this. 
the same kind of honor that God expects us to show in our human families ought to be shown amongst our spiritual family, the family of God. In fact, I think it's one step further. Human families are like a postcard that God gives us to show us what, to, to sort of get us started in thinking about what the redeemed family, the family of faith, is supposed to be like. Anna Jarvis, because of her desire to honor her mother, invented Mother's Day in 1907. And I think it's a beautiful tribute and a beautiful gift, especially for greeting card companies. <laughs> honor for mothers seems to be the natural impulse for children, at least when things are going right, when nothing intervenes. But the problem is things always intervene. Mothers are the first to admit to their children, I'm no saint. And while moms can be their worst critics, it's true. We have to be honest, it's true. Mothers are not perfect. They are sinners. And they can be very hard on themselves. And I think whether through failure, loss, poor choices, or even circumstances beyond their control, mothers are beset with guilt over where they've fallen short in their mothering. And this is exactly why we need a family outside the human family. This is exactly the place where the gospel becomes important. Because humanly speaking, when we're confronted with failure, we do one of two things. We either recede into depression and despair, or we, we advance to work harder, which is basically uh, an impulse of pride. So we either give up which is despair, or we work harder, which is pride. But the gospel says you don't have to give up and you don't have to be proud. There's another way. There's a third way. And the third way of the gospel says don't despair. Jesus already died on the cross. He already became despair incarnate when he died. Jesus says don't worry about trying harder because Jesus has already attained all the righteousness you ever needed. You see, the third way of the gospel, the spiritual family of God provides a gospel solution to our mothering and our fathering problems. So I think it's when we're confronted with our failure, when we're confronted with our shortcomings, that we see the need for a spiritual family. We see the need for a redeemed community which which transcends, in a sense, the families that we're placed in, humanly speaking. That's its family pattern. But while the gospel is key to providing healing for our human family relationships, I have some news for you. None of us leave our human problems at the door when we come to church. When we, when we join up or we, we associate with the group of believers, we don't stop being human beings. This is my second point. The problem with relationships in the church are the fractures of sin that we bring to the church. It's like the guy who said, I'm looking for the perfect church, and as soon as he joined it, it wasn't perfect anymore. So I want to consider why the church struggles so badly in accomplishing its mission. It's because of the fracture of sin. You know, maybe you're like me. I came slowly to the realization 
that when I believed in Jesus, when I first heard about the message of Christianity and I believed, I figured all my problems would go away. It's kind of like I figured once I finished being a teenager, I was done growing up. No. I've learned now that I'm approaching 40 that the 30s are a second adolescence. <laughs> so I'm wondering, are the 50s a third adolescence? I don't know. Faith doesn't. It does not suddenly transform us emotionally. It doesn't suddenly transform us psychologically. It doesn't suddenly change everything intellectually. It's a slow process. It's, it's, it's a journey rather than a destination. And too many people come into the fellowship of believers expecting something besides a gathering of sinners. Too many hypocrites in church. You'd fit right in. Come on. <laughs> in his excellent little book about Christian community, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German, um, the German rebel pastor in Nazi Germany, writes this about how some people have idealized their notions about what church should be. Instead of giving thanks to God for the fellowship, Bonhoeffer says, they complain. Everything is so paltry, so petty, so far from what we expected. But Bonhoeffer's point is, these idealized notions actually hinder the church from becoming the mature body of believers it's intended to be. When we bring a wish dream to the fellowship, we actually thwart the growth of the fellowship. Many of us recognize a, a father hunger in our hearts for all those places our fathers failed us or a mother hunger in our hearts for those areas where our mothers didn't live up to what we hoped. And so we come to the assembly of believers looking for an ideal, looking for those hopes and dreams to be maybe once and for all met. But the redeemed family, at least on this side of heaven, is not an ideal. It's a reality that God has called us to participate in. It's interesting, we bring a double standard to our church relationships. We freely admit that we're sinners saved by grace, that we're not perfect, just forgiven. But then we associate with the group of people and we expect them to be not only forgiven, but perfect. Which leads me to my third point. Not only is the pattern a family pattern, and not only is the problem of the fractures of sin, but the practice of relationships in a missional church is by faith. What I mean by this is that there's really only one solution to living life together, which is the title of Bonhoeffer's book. It's living life by faith. Living life in faith. I'm calling it the practice of faith. It takes time. And it's difficult. My daughter and son play tennis three times a week at Randolph, and, and every Friday they have a match that they play. And one of my children is struggling with uh, his or her serve. And we were talking about this, and the serve is one of the most complicated parts of the tennis match. And yet it's one of the most important, because with the serve you actually have, you, you bring an advantage. You, you're putting the ball into play. But it takes lots and lots of practice. Faith is like the serve. It's the hardest part of the game. 
but it's an essential part of the game of a Christian. This is what Bonhoeffer says about faith. He's helpful on this point. He says, human love, and he's contrasting human love and spiritual love, human love makes itself an end. It makes itself an idol, which it worships. It nurses and cultivates a sinful ideal. Think of this as, as a, you know, a boyfriend and girlfriend with stars in their eyes. 14 years old, writing notes or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Spiritual love, Bonhoeffer says, comes from Jesus Christ. Spiritual love serves Jesus alone. It knows that it has no immediate access to someone else. Here's the idea. When we assemble as believers, whether it's on Sunday or in homes throughout the week, when we get together with other Christians, we cannot interact directly with one another. That's human love. We must interact through an intermediary with one another. That's a spiritual love. We come to each other by faith. We practice relationships in the church by faith, by looking first to Jesus Christ and then through Christ to one another. Bonhoeffer continues, because Christ stands between me and others, I do not desire direct fellowship with him. I release the other person from every attempt of mine to regulate, coerce, and dominate him with my love. So to practice and eventually to experience, I say, the relationship God intends in a missional church, we must have faith. Jesus must be so real to us that we go to him as we go to one another. So family pattern, the fracture problem, and the faith practice. This is your surprise bonus fourth point. And guess what the two letters are? F and P. And this is an application. So this is where it really, where the rubber meets the road. In order to do this, in order to practice by faith, here's a specific application. Protect the frail. Protect the frail. Just as our earthly mothers are often beset with fears and a sense of guilt about their shortcomings, so also I think the church is, in a way, very aware of her shortcomings. But despite this, God still calls the church the cradle for all believers. To bring this point home, I wanted to be specific in, in applying this idea about protecting the frail. This goes back to the subject of honor that I brought up in the beginning. In the fifth commandment, if you, if you know those, that's usually on the list of the ones that people remember, along with murder and adultery. It's usually, oh yeah, mom and dad. It goes like this. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that, your Lord, that the Lord thy God gives you. So it's a great way to have a long life. And as I've mentioned in previous messages, honor is not just to flow upstream, children to parents, but what? Downstream, parents to children. Paul is explicit about this in Ephesians 6. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. So honor needs to go upwards from parents to children, but it also needs to go downwards 
or children to parents, but also to parents to children. But it isn't just downstream to those who are young in age, is it? As I heard in the testimonies in the beginning this morning, even grown adults still need parenting. Even, even big people need the love of a dad or a mom, don't we? But it's not just big people who are still children inside. It's the weak who need honor. It's the sick who need honor. It's the infirm who need honor. It's the poor who need honor. It's those who, for whatever reason, are on the margins of society. These, too, need honor. With these words, Jesus called these the least of these, my brothers. He says, as surely as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, so indeed you did it to me. So by shoving or sending honor downstream, we're actually loving Jesus himself. That, to me, is profound. And if believers don't serve the least of these, who will? Isn't that what the gospel is all about? I am the least of these. I, poor sinner, rebel to the crown, was rescued by the king. I, who had given up every right that I had poss- could possibly lay claim to, and Jesus redeemed me. Me. Poor. Marginalized. Me. And that message has been burned into my mind. It's been tattooed on my soul. And because of that, I am equipped and enabled to go and to minister to the poor and to the young and to the needy. This is why I think in 1 Timothy 5, Paul spends most of his time talking about a very important marginalized group in society. Widows. Verse 3 of my text says, honor widows who are truly widows. A widow is is a marginalized population, and a widow is someone who is in need of honor. And so when care is taken to show honor in this way, the result is equality in the family of God. There's a redistribution of honor. Those who have lots of honor share it with those who have little honor. James talks about sort of the backseat Christian and the front row Christian. So the one who comes in, James talks about the one who comes in with lots of rings and jewelry and and a big fat wallet. Oh, come please, sit here in the front row. And then the one who has nothing sits in the back. And James says, "Uh uh-uh, reverse it. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to this. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, Paul continues, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one member is honored, we all honor. We all are honored. Now there's a recipe for a church that is healthy. There's a recipe for a church that knows its mission. It's not about me. It's about you. And then you say, no, 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 no. It's not about me. It's about you. And we both stand there at the door saying, no, you first. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. Would you guys go inside after all? You know, there's a 
a practice, and I have to say this because I've quoted Bonhoeffer, there was a practice in the middle of the 20th century that involved eliminating weak people, killing them. It's still believed today to be, by some marginalized groups, a good strategy. But we can't eliminate each other when we're weak. In fact, if you think about it, we really only experience family when we sin against each other, when we are weak around one another. Because then we realize this isn't about our gifts, it's about Jesus and his undeserving grace. In conclusion, Mother's Day really is, I think, a good holiday. But often we, we forget that through whatever circumstances, that it isn't the end of the matter. It's not the last word. That motherhood points to something more than itself. It ultimately points to God and to his body, the church. We have a high calling. We have a mission to live up to as a church. We, we are called as a missional church to be the household of faith. A lot of us, myself included, have unmet family needs. Can we just admit that? We have needs that were not met by our human families. Our faith has not called us to bear that alone. Our faith has called us into community, into association with one another, where God can continue the work of parenting in our lives, in the faith family. Our main point today has been not only is the church our mother and the cradle of faith for all believers, but the people in the church are given to us by God to help us experience what true redeemed family life is all about. Church is the gathered company of imperfect believers who are all in process. We're not all at the same place, but we need each person to be a full family. Every one of us counts, no matter where we are in the spectrum. So let's, let's ask God to help us to be the family that he's called us to be. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for the family of faith. Family is an abused word these days. It's maligned. It's, it's been used as a weapon, even. And so, Lord, we're asking for cleansing. We're asking for grace. We're asking for forgiveness. And we're asking that the gospel would be restored to the center of this specific community of faith, this specific congregation, Desert Springs. And not only Desert Springs, but all the churches that are represented here. We ask, Lord, that you would, would renew your church from a fractious, judgmental, harsh gathering of people who are legalists to a community, a family of faith, people that are shaped by Jesus Christ and through their faith embrace one another. Lord, we can't do this apart from a sovereign work of your Spirit. Please do this. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.